all living in a world gone geek. It's time to geek hard or go home. The podcast is real. Here's your host, Grounded Geek. All right. Hey, welcome everybody to the podcast is real here on YouTube and Twitch and Facebook live. We are uh, recording for our podcast and doing our live show. The podcast is really live and we're glad that you could be here with us. It's me, Grounded Geek, uh, also known as Jeff, and uh, we're here to have a, a great show for you tonight. Happy Halloween to those of you out there who are celebrating. Maybe you are listening while uh, giving out candy. We thank you for joining us for that. Um, maybe you're listening on the podcast the next day. We thank you for that as well. We've got a great show tonight, a great guest. I can't wait to get into conversation and talk to him. It is just me. You're probably wondering why haven't you introduced uh, Utah and Aaliyah yet? They're actually engaging in trick-or-treat activities tonight. So, uh, you know, some of, I think they might be tuning in here and there. So we may see them in the comments from time to time. But other than that, it's going to be me and the guest tonight. And we're going to have an old-fashioned film discussion um, that I'm really excited to get into. Uh, this film that I've seen and the the man who has helped bring it back, uh, bring it out of the the depths of darkness where it has been residing for uh, since 1938. It's going to be an exciting uh, time to talk about. Before we get to that, though, I do want to just let you guys know about some cool things that are coming up. November 5th and 6th, every year around that time, uh, we do a charity event called Extra Life. Extra Life is a 24-hour gaming marathon where we raise money for Children's Miracle Network hospitals. And for us here in Cleveland, that's UH Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, which those of you who know me personally know it's a hospital that's very close to my heart. I worked there for many years, worked with kids, um, got to know a lot of the families there, and they were um, instrumental in helping my family as my daughter was going through chemo in the midst of the pandemic here uh, last year. So uh, Rainbow is very close to my heart and we're trying to raise some money for the hospital through Extra Life. So Extra Life is a Children's Miracle Network hospital program that you can actually sign up and do your own marathon to raise money for your uh, local children's hospital, wherever you happen to be in the world. So if you are somewhere uh, like our guest in Seattle, there's a Seattle Children's Hospital. I'm not sure the name of it, but it uh, has, um, uh, if it's part of the Children's Miracle Network hospitals system, you can raise money for them. And, uh, and I, you can find out all about it at www.extra-life.org. Um, and you can sponsor me or Utah or the World Gone Geek as a team uh, to help us with Rainbow if you'd like to do that. Um, that's a way you can participate. If you're not, maybe you're not a gamer. You don't want to do. You want to participate. Uh, but I wanted to let everybody know that that's happening on Friday. So Friday at, at around 7.30 p.m., I'm going to be going live. And uh, we're going to talk uh, for a little bit about Extra Life. We're going to kind of try to recruit people to, to get on board and to donate. Um, and then I will be starting the marathon at 8 p.m., and be play, we're going to be playing for 24 hours straight until 8 p.m. Saturday. So that's coming up this weekend. Utah will be starting his uh, marathon at 8 a.m. Saturday morning and going through 8 a.m. Sunday morning. So between the two of us, we're going to cover a lot more than 24 hours, but we're going to overlap for about 12 hours there so we can play some games together, but that we can uh, also be broadcasting even longer. So you hope you'll join us. We'll be on uh, uh, YouTube. I will be on YouTube broadcasting live for that. And you're going to want to show up early. You're going to want to be there at 730 when we launch this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to be um, announcing a very cool giveaway 
that we're doing. And actually, I'm going to announce it now, but we're launching it <laughs> Friday night. And I have here in my hands a Google uh, Stadia Premiere Edition. Okay. What is Google Stadia? It's literally, this is a console to play in 4K uh, video games, uh, literally streaming over the internet. So you don't have to have a big expensive console under your TV. Um, you just have to have a really good inter internet connection and you can play games on the Stadia Premiere Edition. Now you might think, I don't think that's going to work. That's you may be skeptical about the stadia. Well, I have a, a video that will be coming out on Thursday that will show you me unboxing my stadia and playing some games. I've played cyberpunk on this thing, uh, resident evil village, far cry six, and they are smooth as butter. That's amazing that you can play uh, these big, big games. In fact, um, some of you may know that when cyberpunk came out, there were all kinds of glitches and problems with it on all consoles and PC. And the one place you could play it the smoothest uh, was Stadia. So I guess on those Google servers, it just ran better. I don't know, but uh, um, it's cool. Check it out on Thursday. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so that you'll get notified when that happens. And when that drops, you'll see my unveiling of Stadia and how it works. I'll give you a review. And then we're going to give one away um, during the month of November. And you can find out how to enter that by being uh, there for our live stream starting at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Friday night. So I hope that you'll see, we'll see you there. Um, now tonight we are talking to a, uh, a man who has composed music for lots of independent films. Um, and he is gonna tell us the story of how he came across this film that we're gonna be talking about tonight. It's called As the Earth Turns. It's going to premiere um, on Turner Classic Movies premiere. It's never been on there before at midnight tonight, Eastern uh, uh, here. And uh, it's going to be awesome. So you should check it out. There are places you can watch it. But Turner Classic Movies is, I mean, that's the big time. And it's really awesome that it's getting this kind of attention now. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about it. We're going to find out how he even knew that this film existed and how it came into the forefront, how he composed a brand new score for it. And uh, now it's going to be for the masses to view on Turner Classic Movies. So before we do that, let's take a look at the trailer. Hey, Jeff here interjecting to let you know that we're not going to play the trailer here on the podcast version. If you want to check it out, though, check the show notes. The link is there. Okay, back to the show. Awesome. Awesome. And on the show is Ed Hartman. Welcome to the show, Ed. Hey, yeah, baby. <laughs> that was exciting. So uh, this is the film that's from 1938 as directed by Robert H. Lyford. Right now, I think we have the man, uh, the only person on earth who knows more about Robert H. Lyford than his actual family members. Um, that's true. Actually, I, I know more than they do on the live. <laughs> probably <laughs> true. And so uh, I can't wait to talk to you about it. Like I, as a film buff, like this is exciting to watch. Like this, this, just the effects and the special effects that he used and the, the little scratched film, uh, scratch negative so that you can get that electricity effect that he, he did. Yeah. These are, these were things that were just kind of like brand new and thought of, uh, back in at the time that he made this. Um, but this was, this was from 1938, right? A silent film. Yeah, it was, it, it was started in 37 and then, you know, he, it, it took, took a number of months to film it. You know, he would, so the, the story about Lyford is this is a guy who grew up in Seattle uh, in kind of a upper middle class family. And uh, he got involved in 
storytelling from a young age. I mean, you know, he would he would he could line up a, a bunch of books on the on a shelf and make up a story uh, about all the people in the room based on the books. He was just brilliant as a storyteller. And then um, he got into stage plays. And he had a, a, a my do, I have a documentary called "It Gets in Your Blood," mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's all over the uh, film circuit or the uh, film festival circuit right now. It, I don't know if you can see that. This uh, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I've 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 been delving into his story. So so he he wrote like all these stage screenplays. He had, in his basement, he had a theater with mm-hmm. a proscenium, a twelve foot proscenium. Um, appropriately, it was a it was an Asian theme, and 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 a few weeks ago, I was in L.A. screening my documentary at the Chinese Theater on Hollywood in Hollywood. So That's pretty everything amazing. Everything come full circle in the story. Yeah. So the the guy he was just into this, and As the Earth Turns was his ninth film uh, before he he went pro. Wow. And he was actually a member of the Amateur Cinema League. There was such a thing. You know, this was 16 millimeter filmmaking, not eight millimeter and super eight, which is what I did as a kid in mm-hmm. the 70s. I almost went into filmmaking. Wow. Uh, no, I'm in it anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but, uh, but he, he, he went to work for Disney and uh, he directed an Academy Award winning film, um, The Titan, um, which I can show here, maybe. Yeah, something like that. And with, uh, What's his name? Uh, Robert uh, Robert Snyder, famous uh, d- documentarian. Mm-hmm. And he worked for Disney again. And he worked in the Mideast, did all sorts of stuff. Uh, but the first 20 years are the stuff he did that were super creative uh, as a kid with his friends and family. And that, that's what's mind-blowing about this movie is that he put this thing together all himself and was able to put together a cast and crew. This wasn't the biggest film he made. There's another one called The Sea Devil, which I don't have. I own the film estate on this. I literally have his films. And in fact, um, where a lot of this came from was a 16 millimeter film, uh, a couple of films called the Ritual of the Dead and the Scalpel. These were earlier films. Wow. And, and I, I literally have the film cans. Everything's been scanned. And those are going to wind up at our, probably the UCL archive or, or UW or something like that soon. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. So there's a lot of stories floating around in here. I just matter keeping track of them all. <laughs> uh, I, I've been on this thing for three years. Wow. Uh, you know, on that. So, uh, but, but, you know, Leifert was a very fine filmmaker. He was an editor, he was director, he did everything. And, and that's why Disney got into him because he thought, man, this, this guy really knows his tech. He did. He did special effects for um, uh, Fantasia. He, he did model model uh, stuff yeah. for him. And if you look at as the Earth turns, a lot of those skills he learned about model making and uh, he, he used that uh, to, for the artists to draw from. Yeah. And there's some great stories about that. Well, I, learning. I, and that, and that was one of the things that fascinated me about this film. Now, see, I'm. I, I mean, you talk about working with you know eight millimeter back when you were in, uh, yeah. young in the seventies. And, and we had a, we had eight millimeter too. I wasn't allowed to touch it though. My dad used it, but, <laughs> but the, by the time I started uh, making my own uh, films and I do video production now on the side, uh, it was, it was a VHS camera that my grandfather yeah. bought me when I was a senior in high school. So, mm-hmm. uh, or junior in high school. So I started making films with that, but this film reminded me so much of like yeah. that, those days when we were trying to make our own movies and just making things, but 
uh, just because of how much fun it looked like it was. You could see how some really young people are playing older characters and, yeah. you know, with like, you know, makeup and things like that, which was awesome. It looks like a student production, but the va- the production value of it, especially for the time, yeah. is so impressive. Uh, the, like you said, the models, I mean, even in that trailer, we saw the, the kind of the explosions and the mountains and we saw yeah. the, the, the things falling down. Uh, just the fact that it, he was doing this at 20, it really humbles me at the stupid things that I made when I was No, 20. I mean, I, I was attempting animation, you know, single frame, and I didn't have a single frame kind of thing. And it was pretty kid-oriented, you know. Yeah. The, the the great quote we got from the uh, LA Times was, uh, if Steven Spielberg had had a 60-millimeter camera when he was young, this is what he would have done. Yeah. And that and that's pretty stupendous when you think about it. Sure. That. So, uh, no, I, I thought he, he did a tremendous job with what he had. Um, and, you know, people ask, well, was 1937, 38? Why wasn't this a sound movie? Well, sound movies were not really available for 16 millimeter at that time. Mm. Uh, he, and he wasn't in Hollywood. He was in Seattle when he made this right. thing. And there's a lot of Seattle locations in it, like Gasworks, which was a gasification plant. And uh, Boeing Field, he had access to planes. I mean, this guy, yeah. you know, in fact, as far as the, the gas, uh, gas works, which is still around as a park, has some remnants there. Um, they, one of the scenes, they, well, the f- scene where they're kind of running away from the uh, thing, that was, they were literally running away from the guards. Because <laughs> they didn't have, there was no such thing as film permits anyway. You know, it's like, who the heck are yeah. you? I mean, they so, were, you know, this, they this were guerrilla filmmaking before that filmmaking was a thing. Way before it was anything. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I got stories all over there, and I'm writing a biopic script about this. A that's awesome, and and that's the next step on this thing to kind of explore his first 20 years, and it's just hilarious. I mean, it'll it'll be. I, I look at it as Andy Hardy uh, meets Orson Welles. Wow, uh, and and kind of a similar story to the movie Tucker. I always like that movie, so it's yeah. you know, kind of a biopic like that. So uh, you know, again, the the film is is tremendous, and then the interesting thing about my score is about halfway into scoring it, um, we discovered, because I became producer halfway in as well, um, that he had been synchronizing dual turntables to a 60 millimeter projector and even camera trying to attempt film synchronization, even even doing dialogue. Wow. And I, and of course it sent chills in my skull because I, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm not working with a deceased filmmaker he may have a playlist mm. and what i what i did find out from his son chris uh who's helped a lot on all this stuff i there's a part of it's an interview uh in the documentary with him was that you know lifeford liked dvorak tchaikovsky all sorts of things and you know stravinsky and my score is reminiscent of all those things i that's i was kind of drawn to early 20th century, you know, and 19th century classical music with a little bit of jazz mixed in. Yeah. And, and that would have been exactly what he, he wanted. Uh, but he, he literally was trying to synchronize music uh, the best we can. And that it's possible that his um, experiments with that were also of interest to Disney because Disney was aware that the military and industrial are going to need sound possibilities uh, for 60 millimeter, which is quite a bit cheaper than 35. Yeah. If you want to geek out. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I really want to get, I really want to find out like, um, kind of like how you even kind of got involved in this and how you found this. But before we do that, let's like go back even further. Tell us how you got involved with f- film scoring 
at all. Like, how was your, tell us a little bit about your past and your uh, love for music and how this has kind of grown into your career. Well, I, I moved to Seattle in 1979 from Chicago and I went into percussion as an instrument. I have a studio with percussion instruments and, um, and still teach to this day. Uh, and I, I, I almost went to film school because uh, I had been making, you know, cheesy Super 8 movies and stuff like that. And I, I was always struggling that I didn't have music. So I would uh, do the same thing Lifer did. I would have albums played on a, a stereo synchronized as best I could or maybe reel-to-reel tape eventually. Uh, Anyway, so I moved to, uh, I, I went to Indiana University and got a, a degree in percussion performance, but I was always composing when I was there. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it would piss off the, uh, the professors because I was supposed, supposedly a performance degree and not a composing degree. In fact, they, they threw a really high quality composer faculty on my, one of my recitals and he, and he, and he uh, brought my 20 minute piece down to six minutes or something like that. So <laughs> I've learned my lesson, you know, anyway, do not do what you're not supposed to do. So um, <laughs> I wound up again, moving out to Seattle, but I was always involved in composing. I even started a composer series out here and been involved in organizations. Um, over the last X amount of years, I, I ran a drum shop, <laughs> but um I was always a performer, but I always liked writing music. A lot of it was jazz tunes, things like that. But I loved writing classical. What happened to me is as digital recording took over, because all the stuff I was doing with, say, cassette four-track in the 80s was never really quali- distribution-level quality. It was okay. You could kind of pull it off with DBX and stuff. But uh, when things went digital and, you know, around the turn of the, the century, that's a weird thing to say, right? right? <laughs> um, anyway, I had a Task MA track and all of a sudden my tracks really started to get better and I could release them. I could do anything I wanted to these things. And some of the music that I'd created in the 90s and, and, and beyond started to get in film and TV. And that started to make me think, man, you know, maybe I should do that. And over the years, I've had a lot of tracks on film and television. Uh, I have a football marching band tune uh, called Football Funk, if you search it out. Uh, and it, it was done on the Tascam and, and it was on the blind side and Scooby-Doo, the mystery begins. It was just on legacies Wow! Uh, about a week ago, two weeks ago, this is the first of the season. So that thing just keeps getting placed. I and mean, it's brilliant, you know, brilliant, uh, to get that kind of work. And then as I got into logic on my Mac, all of a sudden the concept of synchronizing music to sound started to appear and I realized, oh my God, I can finally get music and image together. Mm-hmm. And so I started to do that. And I was experimenting with YouTube videos, things like that. And then eventually uh, I was comfortable enough to do it. I, I started to get hired as a composer to score films uh, that were in festivals and things like that. And that got me more and more involved. And over the next 20 years, I guess, uh, I've, I've done quite a bit. And I've done, you know, features and uh, documentaries. And and really what's evolved now is I've moved from just being a score composer to producer. So I've learned the other side of what goes on. And it is entirely another game out there. So, you know, once you've learned how to score a movie, you got to understand what the film producer and director do. They have to take that film and present it to festivals and distribution, all the rest of it. So... It has been a massive evolution for me. And it's hilarious that I'm, I'm now back to being a, a movie, you know, filmmaker. Right. Which is what I always really wanted to do. And, and I, you know, I think for me, one of my big interests as a composer was film music from the beginning. 
you know, I, I, I just love Image and, and Music Together. 2001, ironically, was not released with the original score. In fact, Alec, poor Alex North was fired from that project without his knowing and went to the London premiere of 2001 not seeing his score there. Mm. That's a bummer, huh? Thanks, yeah. Kubrick. But... Um, Kubrick was right. I mean, his, his score was, was iconic and that got, and that thing, things like that, it really gets you interested in classical music. We starting in the blue Danube and you see spaceships. I mean, how can't you fall in love with either of those things at the same time? It's sure. like psychologically impacts your head. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, music is so important to films. I mean, there's so many like good examples of like, where people, especially now on YouTube, people can like do all these, you know, cool things, but they'll come out and they'll, they'll remove the music from a scene and it oh, just, yeah, yeah it's there. a completely different yeah. experience or change the music. And now yeah. what used to be a comedy is, is kind of scary or whatever might have occurred, but n n never more so in a silent movie, right? Which is yeah. what, as the earth turns is the music is one of the characters of, of a movie like it that. Is. I mean, it's, it's the entire uh, yeah, spirit yeah. of the film comes from that because there's no spoken dialogue. So tell me That's right. what that was like, trying to, to kind of like come up with the emotions that you needed to put through in the music like that. Well, when I started this project, and we'll get into the history of it, but when I started this, it was really just a family legacy sort of a thing. So there was not a lot of pressure on me to do anything one way or the other. And I really, again, I had no director to work with, so I developed themes. I can play those for you a little bit. Um, and, uh, and, and just worked on them. And my, my process is to kind of go through the score. I'm a good improviser. I'm not the world's greatest piano player or anything like that, but I, I have good enough skills that I can pull off what I need. And then I'll go back and orchestrate what I need to do on that. So there's a whole processing scoring that I do. And everybody's a little different. I mean, John Williams to this day uses pen and paper and mm. he codes and he sends it to his orchestrators and Oh my God, you know, how, how do you do that? He, I heard he watches a movie, he watches a scene once, goes back and scores it by memory. I, I mean, I can't even understand that. Wow. So, you know, I'm, I'm busy there looking at everything that's going on, trying to create stuff, going over it a thousand times and trying to lock in hit points. So when somebody goes like that, you know, something happens. Uh, so there, there's a real process to that. One thing that's very interesting about digital music, like when you were scoring, if you were scoring a silent film for a live organ or uh, uh, orchestra or something like that with a silent movie or even, well, even in a theater that was showing a 16 or 35 millimeter, there's always the sound of the projector, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But with digital, it's dead silent. There is nothing. I mean, there's no hiss of the soundtrack or anything. So if you lay out with music, it is disturbing. I mean, the, the audience is going to go, what happened to the sound? You know? <laughs> so I learned I could not leave it out entirely. There's only one point where I, I dropped it at a very key point, a very interesting transition. And I had to really time that carefully so I didn't leave it out too long where somebody's going to freak out that maybe there's something wrong with their stereo, you know? Yeah. So, you know, th this whole thing has been a challenge for me. And the other, and the thing, so therefore, this is a 45-minute film. And, and it was maybe longer, we don't know, although we have the definitive cut from the director, and that's through a number of resources that have been checked and double-checked. And I discovered 15 minutes more of the film after a couple of weeks, which means I had to rescore a whole bunch. Wow. Uh, you know, and that was the, on the trailer, talks about newly found footage. The whole movie is newly found, <laughs> sure. you know. And then after that, we were at a film festival, the Seattle Film Festival, it premiered at the um, 
Egyptian theater, 1915 theater appropriately. They really did a nice job. And uh, I had some of the families there, of the actors, and they let me know they had another cut of the film. <laughs> like, what? Uh, wait a minute. Were my edits correct? You know, I'm, I'm freaking out there. And I, we got a copy of it. And, uh, and I know mine is the original because it doesn't have the physical edits in it and a few other things. And I was only off by 30 seconds of one scene that was not in the cut, which I put in the DVD. So if you want to see that, the only place that exists on the planet besides my computer <laughs> is on this DVD, which you'll have to buy. Gotcha. <laughs> and, and also on that is also other films that started this whole thing, these other short scenes that were found in another thing. And we, again, we can get to that. Yeah. So it's, it's a process and I love film scoring. I really do. The only thing I might like better is film producing, <laughs> you know, because then I can control the whole damn thing. And yeah. when you score, you're not always in control. I've scored films where half or more of your score gets thrown away or you have to score each scene seven to 20 times. Yeah. You know, and most composers, film composers say, if you haven't been fired from a project, you're not a film composer yet. And I've been fired. So, <laughs> well, there you go. A professional. So tell us how, then, I guess, how you got involved with the families here. How did that, uh, how did you come across this film in the first place? Well, it came to me. <laughs> so uh, in 2017, I closed my drum shop, the drum exchange, luckily before the pandemic, thank God. Mm. Uh, and in 2018, I was, uh, I'd been teaching a student back in the drum shop, uh, a high school kid uh, for a couple of years. Anyway, and he, he moved on and graduated and all the rest of it. And that was the end of that. And then uh, in 2018, uh, a student of mine, adult student came in, Kim Lyford Bishop. And, um, and she was very, very nice. And, and uh, she wanted to take some hand drum lessons and things like that. So I, uh, I said, sure, great. So she had been taking lessons for a couple of months or whatever. And at one point, and you can hunt this down on YouTube. You go to my YouTube channel. Um, there's a song called Can't Stop Gonna Drop. And it's basically a track I did, kind of a Danny Elfman style score. And I just threw it against a Buster Keaton scene, College, and uh, which is a great movie, silent film. And there, it's public domain, so I could, I could do what I wanted with it. And it perfectly synced it. I mean, it was weird. It was, I didn't do any editing to the film. It just magically worked and that can happen. Mm. Uh, I mean, all music will sync in some way. So anyway, I played it for her in a lesson. I said, hey, this is something I did. And she, her eyes widened. Would you be interested in scoring something? I said, I, yeah, this is what I do. Why not? <laughs> you know, and it turned out she had been given the film estate from, from, again, other members of the family, they had, uh, and, and well, this goes back further than that. Right, let me take it back one more step. So um, in 2013, in the classic horror film board, you want to really talk about geeky stuff. Um, there was a discussion started, uh, and I've just been talking to everybody about that. Uh, anyway, a couple of key people in there uh, were talking about this video called Monsters Crash the Pajama Party. Okay. <laughs> this is a story, man, for the ages. Anyway, this is a something weird video. And that's important to remember. You'll be tested on this after. Okay. So anyway, they had discovered there's a couple of scenes in this weird Halloween video. Boy, what a what a coincidence. Halloween, right? Yeah. And it's a weird, wacky, it was a DVD and a video. And, and, and the DVD, I think it was VHS first. Uh, you know, has one of those menus where you have to find your way through it and it's got all sorts of surprises and stuff like that. It's, it's pretty hilarious. 
anyway, there's two scenes and they were trying to figure out who, who did these movies. And one of them is a mummy kind of a scene and the other one's uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing. And they finally discovered it was this guy, Richard Lyford. Okay. Eventually they contacted the family and that's what started this ball rolling. And then Kim got involved, got the film estate, literally Chris drove the films to Seattle. <laughs> wow. And I may be doing that down to LA. I don't know. So, so anyway, that, that, that's how it got to me. And then I became producer and we put, we, again, it wasn't even intended to do any, go anywhere, but it came out pretty good. Mm-hmm. And, and we had, we had sufficient, you know, finances to put it in, uh, to have the music score mixed professionally at Clatterton, now Formosa in Seattle. And they did a spectacular job of taking, uh, you know, something I can do on my computer and really making it cinema quality. And it was going to need to be because we knew it was going to start to be in some major uh, festivals. Mm. So uh, that happened. We did a private screening at Boeing Field, no less, uh, in a theater there. And then uh, we started putting it in festivals. And it was shown all over the world in 122. Actually, there's another festival, Shock Fest, which is going to play both my documentary, It Gets in Your Blood, and As the Earth Turns in December 10th, I think, online. That'll be a first mm. um, to do that. So oh, there was one other place that those have appeared together. And that was when we did a seven-day, get this, Oscar qualifying run. Oh, wow. <laughs> in Los Angeles. Yeah. I'm not making this up. I couldn't. This is a movie in itself. So, uh, no, we actually booked the Lemley theaters based on the, the Carl Lemley family. Famous, you know, talk about Dracula and all that stuff. Yeah. Which Lyford played as, when he was seven years old. <laughs> the circles go. So, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we did that. And I, I put together a, a, a live screening of, of this plus all of these other films. So, it was kind of a good, you know, 70, 80-minute program. And I'm intending to take that into theaters if there's film uh, additional, uh, not film, film groups, film schools, could be retirement homes, things like that. Uh, theaters actually do more theatrical runs with all this stuff because it's really fun when you watch them together. Yeah. And that's what's on the DVD pretty much as well. So anyway, we did that. We, we did get it into the uh, Oscars that year in 2019. And um, of course it didn't get nominated, but that wasn't the point. Right. A thousand DVDs were produced that got in the hands of directors and producers. So I'm hoping some of them have seen it, may watch tonight. Yeah. I do know of some of them that did receive it. Uh, Joe Dante, who did uh, great, great movies. It was one of the Twilight Zone movie guys. Oh, yeah. and gremlins this guy's just infamous anyway i got a nice note from him saying yeah i finally got around watching that damn oscar dvd and he said i i at first thought it was a fake that you had faked this whole thing and this is not, he's not the only one you'll got on amazon and people are like this is a joke man right I'm like if i could fake a movie this damn good i'd be spielberg man you cannot <laughs> be this authentic you just can't do it i'd have to shoot with 60 million it would cost too much to do that Right. So anyway, it's gotten out there. And, and again, hopefully if, if the, the biopic can get out there, there may be some serious in, interest out there in Hollywood because this is such a spectacular story of, yeah. of his youth. Well, then, so then, anyway, then, yeah. So it got in all these festivals and, uh, and then uh, we achieved distribution, uh, indie rights, as you saw on the leader there. And um, 
And then I arranged the Turner Classic Movies broadcast myself. I got to know people there and we've been waiting patiently. Ironically, it was they had, they had uh, the uh, access to the film starting in 2020, but by delaying it to this year, Silent Sunday's core uh, also synchronized with Halloween for the first time. Yeah. And, and perfectly made an opportunity available. That's cool. So, man, you know, again, that, that's how this thing evolved. And then one other really synchronicity event, well, there's a whole bunch of them. You can read the whole thing, go to the website, this backstory. But uh, these films these rare films that uh, <laughs> were from this company, something weird that made the video, right? Okay, so I started to track down something weird, which incredibly is a Seattle company. <laughs> and it took about six months. And finally they responded, the, the widow of the guy who founded this thing, who was a wonderful caretaker of old films, uh, she contacted me, say, you know, I still have these films and she's transitioning out of some of this stuff. And it turned out that her office was two miles away from my house. Wow. So these Lifeford films <laughs> found their way back to me. I mean, if that isn't incredible, and I have the rest of the stock 20 feet away from me, yeah. you know, of amazing stuff in there. And I, we don't have a lot of his early stuff. I'm still looking for the other ha half of some of these movies and six more that he did. Right. And I'm dying to find him because as I write these biopics, it'd be great to actually have the films that he did. Sure. Yeah. Well, so that's how it occurred initially anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I you mentioned that he, you know, he, speaking of Dracula, that he played him when he was seven. Yeah. That was one of the things I noticed. You know, I watched the short documentary yeah. that you made. Um, and it is fascinating, like um, just the, some of the things like, I mean, it was kind of a, a little bit of a, of a prodigy when it comes to like the, that creative process, as far as like Absolutely. staging his own uh, production of Dracula at such a young age. Um, and then uh, I, you mentioned a few things in the documentary that I don't know if you're planning to, to put them in the, in the biopic or not, but I would love to know more of the story about how he, uh, I guess they got, um, they did it at their school, the Dracula, yeah. and they got in that, trouble that's for one of the great. That's one of the great stories because yeah. he had been playing Dracula for honestly a couple of years from the time he was seven. And he started to develop the screenplay for it. He wrote his own, uh -huh. of course, you know, and As the Earth Turns was technically based on another book, yeah. The Man Who Rocked the Earth from 1915, but it was nothing like that book. It was un, it would have been unwatchable film. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been like trying to make an Isaac Asimov movie. Right. Anyway. <laughs> Which the um, <laughs> foundation is on Apple sorry. right now. So. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. It's always good. Yeah. So anyway, uh, no. So he wound up putting on this play. This is all absolutely part of the biopic. I mean, you can't, this is such wonderful theatrical material. So imagine him, you know, in third grade, maybe, I don't know, putting on Dracula and they, and his theater, his home theater, you know, and having people, I, I've actually toured his house. I got to know the caretakers of the house, the, well, the owners of the house now. And they're, they're into it. They're sending me stuff. That's I'm great. having a wonderful time working with them. And then we did, a, I did a big tour and we, I even, I think I caught some orbs. I'm not kidding. Okay. So anyway, uh, so that theater was in the basement and people would come in from an outside access. I think that's how they got in. I'm starting to understand the geography of the room of the space. Anyway, uh, so he went and took this thing 
somehow they wanted to see this thing. So he, I think he beefed it up a little bit <laughs> and he did this production. And it was, this is like straight out of the Adams family at camp, right? Right. And, and so they do, <laughs> they put on this play and, you know, there's a, a spewing blood ending. <laughs> And they got kicked out of school for two days. That's so funny. <laughs> the whole cast. <laughs> Man, I mean, geez. So, you know, he was, he was, he understood that, you know, if you're going to do something, you do it right. He was a little, he was way too ahead of his time though, you yeah. know, you know, young for what he was doing. But right. he, he was an entertainer thoroughly and he was very, very good with makeup and design, set design, all of that stuff. And I think that's what you see. And as the earth turns, you go, wow. You know how they do that, and there's a lot of explosions in it. And he he was into caps of explosive right. stuff. Yeah, well, there's another story. I don't want to spoil the, all the stuff on the stories on the documentary. Yeah, there's the, another the, story in the documentary from his. It was his son, yeah. right, that tells that story about son, an explosion. Yeah. No, um, we'll tell it. Why not? It's, so it's, you okay. watch the documentary, <laughs> and, and no, it, it's it's a key scene in the in the, in the biopic. But basically, uh, he's working at Disney as the, and, he, and he's working on Fantasia. And Disney wants a model of, we believe, was the, the volcano scene from Fantasia. And so Lyford, being so acquainted with dynamite and stuff <laughs> like that, actually, he used magnesium, <laughs> nice and safe. And he blew up on the lot, on Buena Vista lot, um, a, a bunch of dirt. Anyway, and it, you know, he slowed it down. He had good quality cameras for the first time in his life. And, and anyway, so uh, he, he got called into Disney's office within a few minutes. And uh, Mr. Disney would like to see you. It's normally it was Walt. Yeah. And uh, Walt had really taken a, a, you know, was really interested in, in Lyford as a director and everything else. He knew that Lyford was going to be great. Um, and so he got brought into the office and, and Disney looked at him. He said, uh, were you? kind of experimenting with that thing we were talking about earlier, you know, and he goes, yeah, I did. I did. And he said, well, you know, at, at precisely 103 or whatever, um, all of my animators on the lot, you know, were in mid art and they went, you know? <laughs> he lost God knows how many thousands of dollars of artwork at that. And he's like, so you better bring me in the wet stock like now. Anyway, they brought it in. It was fine. It was really, and, and he was like, yeah, just don't ever do that again, man. You know, but you know, that was commitment. That's yeah. what he did. And, and it's a, a really, you know, I mean, he had the guts to pull it off and he did that kind of stuff on as the earth turns. Yeah. There's, there's stories that are not on the dock of, you know, that are going to be part of the process. And this is why I'm desperately trying to find are as many backstories to these early films as I can. And Chris, his son, really has helped out a lot with those. He wrote about this stuff. There's articles in American Cinematographer that got a lot of this started. Mm. That's where some of the uh, classic horror film board guys uh, discovered a lot of this stuff and and turned us on to all of that. Uh, and, and for a 20-year-old to write now, American Cinematographer is a little bit of a deal too. Sure. Because if you think about it, I, I've known filmmakers you know, all of their life are still trying to get in that, in that rag. So, you know, you know, he, he was, he was brilliant on there and, and we keep uncovering more articles and mentions of him. If anybody comes up with Richard Lyford articles or films, especially, I would love to be in touch with you. Sure. Uh, and you can get to me through that or Ed Hartman music, my, my website.
Oh, and there is one N on Hartman, just to correct what I noticed. <laughs> I think on one of the YouTube things. So anyway. <laughs> oh, I'll fix that. If that's Never the been case. a double N. <laughs> anyway. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do think that he, he was clearly ahead of, and you know, uh, in the documentary it talks about how he basically was a contemporary of, of Orson Welles. They were both kind of coming yeah. up in the, in the, at the same time and uh, coincidentally died the same year. But the, uh, yeah. um, the stuff that he does in this silent movie, some of the camera angles, some of the, yeah. the canted angles, those were things that people weren't doing in movies. No, back then. no, this is 1937 and yeah. Citizen Kane is 1940. Right. And you, and you look at this or this one scene in there and it's, yeah, I, I that caught me right away. Mm -hmm. When I first saw that, I was startled. I thought, there's something wrong with the film. And then I, oh no, my God, he's, he's actually, he's doing this anticipating wells. Mm -hmm. You know, I know I don't remember ever seeing anybody do that. I mean, I think some silent films probably did, you know, there, there was especially European films and I'm, I'm sure, you know, Wells wasn't the first one to invent any of that stuff, right? but he perfected it, sure. you know, but the angles, even the angles, when you look at Pax rising, mm -hmm. that's definitely shot from the ground up mm -hmm. uh, to create a, a kind of an illusion of height and all the rest of that. And of course, to do all of the models, you have to create really good edits from live footage to model footage. He does that well with the train yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, you know, if you, if you watch it and you go, well, that was, you know, whatever. And you could write off these effects in a minute. Mm -hmm. But you can write off Flash Gordon effects, which was very popular right. in the same year as as this came out. I mean, the you know, the, the crazy spaceships. Sure. I watched that stuff as a kid. It was on yeah. TV all the time. So, you know, with fireworks coming out of the rear. You know, so he, he really pulled it off uh, as well as he could. Mm -hmm. And he never, you know, he knew this was his amateur work. And I, I and the reason why it was never released, people say, well, why, why don't we see this? Why, why didn't he get it out? Because, again, he considered it an, an amateur film for him. Yeah. But on the other hand, he had no way to release it if he wanted to. <laughs> sure. It was in Seattle, mm -hmm. you know, and it was 16 millimeter. I mean, there was just no indie distribution. He couldn't call up Amazon and say, you know, let's put it on your <laughs> right. platform, you know. Right. He, he would walk it around. He did play it at at uh, Franklin High School. We know that. And probably at a few theaters locally, you know, uh, but it was just silent. Maybe he ran some records, uh, you know, started to spin some records while playing it. I don't know. Right. Uh, I know that I just found out um, how he got involved with Disney. And I had thought that maybe Disney read his articles or something like that. But actually, this is this is new information. Um Disney's barber, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> Disney's barber had seen one of like probably as the Earth turns uh, film as he was that he he I was in a amateur cinema club, and Lyford had moved to L.A. In fact, Lyford Lyford stayed at the Glendale Y, which was a block away from where we showed the film for our seven day, and I went over to that Y to say hi and say you know what you had somebody here. 80 years ago <laughs> that's neat. that made this movie. <laughs> that's so, neat. yeah. So anyway, uh, and that's how they got it. And Lyford actually screened his film, probably as the returns in a screening booth at Disney for Lyford, for Disney and his wife. And that was, that's how, that's what, that was the entrance there. And he came in in the mail room. I mean, that was the only place he could physically technically come in. 
in traffic. They call it traffic. But I think immediately Disney, like, I want you to work on this, work on this. And they sent him all over the place. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Back when he stayed at, at, in, in LA, I found this out from Chris, that his uh, roommates, one of the guy was like a National Geographic photographer. And the other one is the guy who started Big Boy Hamburgers. <laughs> Yeah, wow. there's there's season two right there. Yeah, I mean, there's so <laughs> there's so it's such a great like old Hollywood story, and and yeah. uh, and and I mean, the biopic is kind of a great idea. Hollywood they love to make movies yeah. about themselves. Um, look at Mank, Mank, who just came out last year. That That's was all a good movie. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know they they love old Hollywood movies. Get a lot, you know, get a lot of. Uh, attention. Yeah. And this, and this is, a, is interesting. This is an it's interesting not, one. It's one that's, and it's not. It's not really old Hollywood. I mean, it's really before. It's 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 Seattle, yeah. which means for me, if I if I get everything I want from a production, mm -hmm. I don't know how much I'd be involved in it. I don't know. I may sell a script. I may wind up produce it. I don't know. But uh, what I'd love to see is a combination of Hollywood and Seattle. And Seattle's kind of coming into its own right now. There's a big push. Yeah. You get the incentives back and a reorganization of the film commissions and things like that. Because all so much of the work's been going up to Vancouver. Mm. And, and there's a ton of, uh, you know, wonderful filmmaking people and community here. Uh, that are incredible. And so if you can get those people work, then you're doing exactly what Lifer did. Yeah. And, and you've come full circle and are producing indie films, but having the connections with Hollywood so that they are not just, you know, going to wind up on a you know streaming platform somewhere and actually get this film. I mean, I would hope that a biopic is going to have a, a theatrical run as it would deserve. Sure. Uh, and I think it would be very popular film. I really do. I, it'll be very fun. Uh, you know, again, Tucker is kind of my model for that. That was a fun movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I personally, I, I, you know, I mentioned at the, you know, top of the hour, I'm, I'm a film buff. I love this kind of stuff. Um, if you're at all a movie uh, buff who, who likes old movies, likes to watch these and you enjoy learning how kind of that that process of making movies. That's that's always been a, a hobby of mine. You've got to watch this tonight. Um, it is available out there on the web in certain places, but you can watch it on Turner, Turner Classic Movies um, at midnight tonight Eastern. I guess that's nine nine p.m. nine o'clock for Pacific, you, right? Yep. Right. Yeah. My only thought is I wish it had been a little earlier so it wasn't going to be so late on the East Coast. Yeah. But hey, that's the way it goes, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might I'm, I might stick around and watch it myself, even though I've seen it. Um, but I'd like, I, I'm kind of interested to see how it's packaged and, and shows on a, on the big screen, you know, TV there. I, I was really hoping to interview with Jacqueline Stewart, who does Silent Sundays and that we just, didn't, that didn't come together. Yeah. So I'll be very interested to see what her introduction is like. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Hopefully it's accurate. <laughs> right. Let's Hopefully hope. they have enough stuff from me. I, there's really no other place to go. Sure. You know, it's funny, at some point somebody said, was talking to me and said, oh yeah, my, I know somebody who was, uh, who was studying Lyford in college. I mean, I, I don't think so. Huh. There's no, you know, unless they followed some of my emails. Yeah. <laughs> and and today, I mean, this thing goes on. So today, the Seattle Times, we got a nice little. Ah, see, this is so weird. I can't even do it. But anyway, Seattle Times has a. Uh, it's just the what is it about it? Just that you can't find the push per, person. At, anyway, it Seattle Times has an article focus, yeah. in the Sunday paper or whatever. Um, on there, so they, we've That's been great. we've been moving forward on a lot of things at once here. I mean, there's there's tons happening almost daily on this film. Yeah.
And I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, and I'm and I'm I'm looking for filmmakers to score films for as well. That's always something I like to do. Yeah. Um, and I'm help help them with film festivals and all the rest of it because I've learned that. And it's it gets in your blood. Has just gotten to its 109th festival and its 87th award nomination. Wow! Uh, and there is and if, and if you go to Ed Hartman Music, there's a link to it gets in your blood that page. And it lists all the screenings, all of the uh, festivals it's in, all the links and things like that. Um, and that, so you can watch that, you know, as well. Or, or, you know, pick up the DVD if you want to get it all for home. And I, this is a killer DVD. I had people involved with um, doing the artwork and all the rest of it. It was really fun to put it together. A lot of work. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what's in it is the, uh, again, the, the trailer, the film, the missing footage, uh, my documentary, plus... Uh, home movies uh, by Richard Lyford that he did at wartime with his wife. Wow. Pretty funny, funny little film. And then I, I have a little short that's, that's also on YouTube called Let's Go to the Kitchen. There was a pandemic theatrical uh, intermission movie, you know, let's go to the kitchen sort of thing. And it was this kitschy, kitschy track that I, I kind of put a bunch of stuff on. And that same track was in the Twilight Zone, uh, the second season, last episode, the, the one about that had the... Uh, Oh, the characters from uh, it's it's a cookbook. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait, so I, the song that was used in Twilight Zone the reboot, uh, the season two, the last episode, which is really one of the best ones. Uh, it was very critically related, rated uh, with with those characters, the aliens. You know, that's uh, it's a funny and it, and and they use this fifties pizzicato doop, 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 sort of tri- string tune mm-hmm. and it's set against the the immolation station yeah. where you <laughs> i mean go into it <laughs> sure no I, and you know what you've just convinced me to go ahead and watch the second season i only watched the first one and oh yeah and i was i i you know my personal opinion is i was it was okay like i just it was okay it i'm a huge fan of the original like yes. and um I even loved the the you know the movie that they did in the eighties. Actually, recreated uh, the yep. air, the terror at thirty five thousand feet or whatever. The I don't remember how many yeah. feet it was in the sky um, with William Shatner, but it was John Lithgow and all that. Like uh, that reboot. I'm not a huge fan of reboots, but like I like right. it when it's like homage. When it's like this, this show just was just. I don't know. You know it was I so different from was, the original yeah. that I, I didn't like it as much. But if they're if it they're doing the homage, I want to see it. Yeah, that, and again, I it was I think it was the best one. So awesome. I'm very happy to be in that. But I, I think second season was a little better than first one. I'm gonna have to check be, it out. You yeah. convinced me. Yeah. <laughs> convinced me to jump back in. That's awesome. Um, all right. Well, I know that you you've got your piano there, and you said that you might oh, yeah. share, share some stuff with us. Do you want to go? Ahead, do you want to do that now? Sure. Yeah. Why not? So um, the process of scoring for me, anyway, is to develop themes. Uh, and you know, nowadays you have the kind of modern Hans Zimmer, you know, and Hans is a wonderful musician. I mean, my God, that guy's a genius. So, so I'm not talking him down, but you know, a lot of modern scores are this kind of just, you know, whatever inception-y, you know, electronic from hell. Yeah. Anyway, but I, and I, so to me, I'm, I'm not that, I mean, I can do that stuff. I, I don't mind doing it if it's the, the job, but um, I, I do like, you know, music that has lots of themes. And of course I'm drawn to Bernard Herman. And in fact, in as the earth terms, I use some organ sounds that just these low, you know, 
And and all of a sudden, there's a, almost a science fiction feel to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do that, uh, Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, those are classic Herman scores. Um, so I really kind of relate to him more than maybe any other composer on there. Um, anyway, so the, the main theme that was also on the, uh, let me remember this, uh, that was also on the trailer... That's kind of the theme, uh, main theme on there. And then it, 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 there's lots of other sections. There's jazzy stuff in here, kind of. Yeah. You know, with kind of bluesy stuff with clarinet. Again, I tried to stay 30s on all that stuff. There's what we call TikTok music to this day where you kind of go... That sort of thing. And that's not difficult to create, but you have to make it kind of synchronized to what's going on and build and all the rest is similar to kind of trailer scoring, that sort of thing. Uh, The the other main theme, and uh, if you watch, uh, there's there's a great, I think, probably the best, well, there's two great scenes in the movie in my mind that I, I think he surpasses amateurism completely. Mm. And one of them is kind of when it's snowing in July, as us all say, it has to do with earthquakes in the White House. <laughs> yeah. The story stage, uh, you know, people are falling. I mean, you know, that, that you earthquake got, scene is one of my favorite. That's, that's, yeah, and that's I mean, the I, camera angles in that were phenomenal too. Yeah. And, and, that, and I, I know in the house where they did that, I mean, that's what's freaky. You go in the house, you're like, no, there's no way. You know, he was, he was an expert at minimal uh, set design and understanding what you see in the lens is what the audience sees and you can't, you don't worry about anything else. You can have, you know, modern America on either side, but it's what's <laughs> in the middle. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, the, the recent uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Once Upon a Time in America. He didn't use any effects on that film when he shot all that uh, 60s stuff. It was all about angles and picking the right signs. And that was amazing what he did, you know. Yeah. That. So anyway, but the these two scenes... There's kind of a main thing that I also have used in uh, other things, but this kind of the chord doesn't resolve like that. It kind of just ends. Kind of this mysterious non-ending chord like that. So to me, that's that. The magic chord that goes back with me down back to Bach and when I first started seriously compose, and I was kind of composing in a lot of Baroque style, because at that time, uh, my, uh, my girlfriend at that time was a harpsichordist. And so when you have a harpsichord, you don't have a, um, you don't have a pedal. So you can't hold chords down like that. Everything is linear. Yeah. So I really learned how to kind of improvise. I can do that all day. <laughs> anyway, uh, but the chord that Bach really loved that just, I don't know, everybody loves, it's this, we call the seventh chord with the seventh on the bottom. And if you listen to the logo for A Sense Productions, my, my production company, that's the chord. It doesn't really resolve. I mean, normally it would like that, but I just, and that's a very magical chord to me. So that's an example of kind of seeking out music that I'm familiar with, you know, you, you don't want to get too repetitive on what you do, but though there, there's maybe three or four, I think, important musical themes that get 
that come back. Now, during the earthquake, I, I was being a percussionist, I have things like, you know, very polyrhythmic stuff. And it's not just three against two, it's four against three. Like that. That's really complex to do and pull it off. And so it's fully orchestrated like that. And the closest thing you're going to get there would be Philip Glass or Stravinsky. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, it's a major composer to pull that off. So, uh, and I love it because it just sounds like crashing and burning of everything, you know, way too many. Charles Ives would have, that, actually, Charles Ives, he was, he actually wrote, you know, pieces where it sounded like two parades were going by. And and when you play it, it sound literally sounds like that. I mean, the, you know that that, so that was that was something I learned early in high school band and orchestra was Charles Ives stuff. So I think that probably was a good influence on me on that particular scene for sure. <laughs> That's awesome, and and like we said earlier, like the the soundtrack of this is just as much a character as the as the characters. Like it it. Without it, um, like so, so many of the things that happen, or I guess not without, without it, it would be dead silent. Like you said, there's nothing. You don't even have the, the. No, the, there's no hiss, but uh, there's no anything. But it's with disturbing. a, without the right music, some of those scenes wouldn't have the impact that they have. And I, yeah, it was just yeah. fascinating to see that and, and to, to have you here kind of no, explain how that it. works. And and the and the the score is done well. Uh, there's a soundtrack available, which yeah. is really cool to have. And I re I really enjoyed writing it. And I you know and I, you know I got to thank you know Kim Bishop, who's to this day supporting all of these things and tremendously in many many ways. And uh, none of this would have happened without her and the family. Yeah. So you know this is a this is a huge deal. Now you know bringing us to the present, the idea of having this on Turner Classic Movies tonight is absolutely off the charts astounding to me mm. because I, you know, none of us would have thought any, even just finishing this movie and having it in, in the Seattle Film Festival, that was an early goal on this one, sort of thing. But to have moved it this far uh, to a point where it's actually being accepted as, as true cinema, uh, wow. You know, and, and again, you know, it's, you know, it's it's whatever it is. But you, you look at early silent films from the 20s. Again, this is a little later, but it's the same era in the end. You know what I love about the screening tonight is it's followed by Metropolis. Oh, wow. And, and there's a Metropolis feel in this film. Yeah. I mean, it's got similar vibe to it. Things to come, you know. Uh, th there's astounding dialogue in there. I swear to God, at one point, um, the Pax, the Lyford plays Pax, who's the kind of crazed mad scientist. And there's a backstory that that was the discovered footage was going back in time to World War II. We didn't have that in the original cut. And I'm, so it was a little jumpy. I'm scoring this. I go, what? I didn't even understand this movie. Yeah. And then when that got in, all of a sudden things went into place. Anyway, that particular character, when he's kind of in the, that scene back in World War II, He's kind of, you know, the, 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 the other guy who is, is involved with him says, well, why didn't you, why are you out on the field if you're a scientist? You know, why aren't you working in the back? And he goes, I'm a scientist, not a butcher. You know, I'm thinking, yeah. where have I heard that before? You know, it's like out of Star Trek, you know. Yeah. I'm a doctor, not a <laughs> bricklayer, you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of funny little things like that when you kind of analyze this movie that are very, very ahead of their time. Right. 
you know, in so many ways. So it's it's really fun movie to people watch, and any but you know, it's all ages too. So yeah, um, but I encourage anybody to watch it and, and watch it in context. If you can go to the website, watch you know, see look at some of the back uh, stuff. If you can watch the doc, if if somebody really hard up on watching the doc, they can email me and I'll send them a link. They can watch it too. You know, right. but if you want to support the film, you know, get get the DVD, which is wonderful. And uh, in fact, the DVD is available on the TCM shop, which is great. Nice. And that's the best way to do it because that sh that tells TCM that this is an important film and they're going to hopefully, um, you know, put it on, uh, you know, a number of times in the next year or two. That'd be great. Well, tell tell folks how they can find. So obviously the web, the website for the, the As the Earth Turns is AsTheEarthTurns.com. But how else can right. they find you and more information about this? Yeah, edhartmanmusic.com. I mean, you can Google me, you'll find me. Um, E-D-H-A-R-T-M-A-N with one N. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, and there's lots of links on there. I have tons. I, I, I do teach music licensing, how to get your music in film and TV. And in fact, a class is coming up on November 13th, a Saturday, uh, 10 o'clock Pacific. Uh, and that's a great class I've been teaching for a couple decades now uh, on, on my process of doing that. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm working with a, another um, platform on that musician uh, producers associated. So I can't remember his name, but uh, that's a really cool thing. And I do a one-on-one -on -one as well. And Zoom has been great because I can share screens and all the rest of that. So anyway, those are things I can offer. I have free resources for composers and filmmakers uh, there's just a lot of information on there. And I've written up a number of articles on Stage 32, which is kind of Facebook for film, uh, things like that. And I'm involved heavily in the Seattle Composers Alliance in Seattle, as well as uh, Seattle Filmmakers, uh, Seattle Film uh, Summit. I've been on a lot of panels talking about this stuff. So I'm always happy to chat. Oh, and I have a podcast myself, yeah. which I'm just starting to get back into after... These things, these things are difficult. I realized <laughs> it's not the podcast; it's all the editing and all sure. the other junk you got to do. You know, yeah, promotion. So anyway, and I've been interviewing filmmakers, uh, and that's gone well. There's about twelve episodes out, and then I've got them another three. I'm ready to throw out there, and I'm looking for other filmmakers to interview about their projects. Awesome. So that's been great. Yeah. Well, we might have to coordinate and throw some of them our way. We'd like to have some of those folks on our show too. Um, Ed, thank you so much for being here. It's really yeah, exciting. Thank Thanks you, for yeah. sharing the, the movie with me. I, mean, I know you shared like some links and I got to see it. Um, and, uh, and the documentary, which was, was again, fascinating. So I'm, I'm really interested to see, you know, more about this, this man's life, uh, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show yeah. and sharing it with us tonight. We know that you've got a busy schedule tonight, especially with the show, but thank you for spending the time with us. Yeah. Yeah. Get the popcorn, man. I mean, this is it. This is, this is a historic moment. It really is. You, yeah. you just, I, I can't, th you know, the closest thing we came up with regarding uh, a situation like this was when Orson Welles filmed The Other Side of the Wind came out a few years ago. There was an unreleased film, an unfinished film that yeah. Scorsese finished. And I haven't heard much about it. It was it was interesting. John Huston at a party, basically bizarre movie, experimental <laughs> film, which is something Wells got into. Sure, but that was a fifty-year-old thing that was sitting around. This is eighty. Yeah. I mean, we beat the pants out of that one. So <laughs> we keep coming back to Wells. Is all I know. So there's got to be a relationship with that somewhere, right? You know, and I, I think. You know, whether Wells and Lyford ever met, I don't know. We don't have no, you know, I would like to have seen that happen. Yeah. Because I think that would have been a fascinating thing. And I'm sure 
Lyford followed Wells, absolutely. And, and Wells was similar because they were both independents. And one reason why, and you find out in the documentary about this, he wasn't, why we don't know who Richard Lyford is, is because of his independent nature. Yeah. And he did a lot of commercial and educational films later in life. But he did do stuff, stuff for Disney again as well. And, uh, but never really got back heavily into the narrative film. And I do know on authority from his son that he would have loved to have done, uh, you know, a great adventure movies and stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, Spielberg stuff, right. uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think that would have been the film he would have loved to do. Yeah. And he loved it. And we know that he, he would love to watch amazing stories, you know, and he was alive up through that point. So you can yeah. see there, there's connections there. I'd love to see Spielberg get interested in him. I, I think there's there's a, a big link there. And I and we kind of, I, I want to make one more point. Yeah, we kind of glossed over. I mean, you said it, but I don't think we really talked about it much, but he did win, or he, he was uh, nominated well, he for- He didn't an, win. He, he nominated for an Academy Award for his well, uh, okay. documentary. No, he, didn't, he wasn't nominated. He they won The film won- That's right. The documentary in 1950-51. Uh, for the the Titan, and and it was a film about Michelangelo. Yeah, he was not producer. Robert Snyder was. So Robert Snyder walks away with the with the with trophy. The trophy, yeah. Which is one reason I like to be a producer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I got all I got trophies, man. I, you, you look on the website, man. This as the Earth Trends won a ton of them. Yeah, and unbelievable ones. You know, I, it's just it's startling what they've done. And a lot of a lot of people in the Middle East and Europe and around the world have just dug this movie because it has an interesting European nature to it. There's the, the, the whole scene of the White House is, you know, very European by, na by nature. And yeah. my, I, my score is like that. So, you know, uh, but no, that's, that's a, in fact, I made an early mistake when I was promoting that he was Academy Award winner. Then we discovered, ooh, not technically, yeah. you know, I, you got, you got to go to the producer for that credit. Right. There was also one other guy involved in that movie in the, in the, um, oh, the documentary. Uh, oh, what's his name? Um, oh, and it was narrated by Frederick March. But the the other producer is not listed on here. Uh, anyway, he did like Nanook of the North. I mean, th so you yeah, have many generations involved in this Titan movie. And it's available through through the, the Snyder Foundation and all the rest of that stuff. It's fascinating. And, and one of the great reasons I think it did well was Lyford was a tremendous editor. Yeah, and he knew how to deal with this because this film was somewhat involved with a German film, and before it, it, it was kind of a re recut from uh, footage and things like that. And then Lyford Richard did some spectacular filming uh, in the you know in the the museums and the places where it was. And there's a scene uh, I, I put tiny one in there. I didn't really talk too much about, but Chris assured me that this amazing scene of the light fo light falling falling its way up the staircase very unique kind of a filming thing was a, a real moment in that film that, and it was, uh, it was, it was, it's in the Academy archive and it was like one of the first documentaries that was put on broadcast television. So, you know, Lifer yeah. was always in the peripheral of what's going on. Sure. I know for a fact that uh, when he did one of his animal documentaries and one for a live color, it, it was like really highly rated in the, in the ratings that week against Patton, which was, the all-time winner at that time. So he still managed to eke out a huge win on that for, you know, one for all of Disney, those, those animal films, Yeah, you know, it was that well done. And I know that, um, you know, Walt Disney knew his storytelling abilities well. And he told, he told Chris at one point, he said, you know, 
his independence is really what makes him special. And he, and that Richard Lyford could tell the story of a, how trains work in, in 20 minutes better than any filmmaker he knew. Mm. That's a hell of a compliment from Walt Disney, who's sure. probably considered the all-time filmmaker, yeah. you know, in history. So again, why we don't know who this guy is, is fascinating in itself, but, I think this is the start, hopefully, and, and you know, having a platform like TCM get interested in this, pretty mind-boggling, you yeah. know, for that. Well, I wish you the best of luck uh, in the future. I think it is a fascinating. I will be watching closely. We'll definitely want to have you on if uh, yeah. if uh, the biopic starts to to come together. We'd love to follow that process because that's, again, that fascinates me, that kind of stuff. But yeah, thanks again for sharing with us tonight. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate it. And uh, stay geek out there. <laughs> we will. Thank you. And thank you guys for watching another episode of the podcast is real. Uh, I do want to go before we go, remind you that uh, Extra Life is this weekend, November 5th through 6th. We will be broadcasting live right here on YouTube from uh, basically about 7.30 p.m. Friday night all the way through 8 p.m. Uh, Saturday night, Utah will be continuing then until Sunday morning. Uh, all of that is for a good cause. It's for Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital and uh, Children's Miracle Network hospitals. We're raising money for them. So please tune in for that because we will also, like I said before, be giving away um, a Stadia premiere edition um, in our road to 4K. And uh, I'll explain all of that on Thursday night. So you're going to want to, or Friday night, sorry, Friday night, you're going to want to be there 7.30 when we go live. I will launch that um, that promotion. You can find out how you can win that. So um, we're going to do that then. Uh, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate uh, you being a part of our Sunday night. Uh, thanks for spending the time with us. If you're listening to us on the podcast, we appreciate that as well. Don't forget to follow us on all the socials. You can find out what's going on, learn about who our guests are and get some behind the scenes stuff on all of those things. We're at World Gun Geek pretty much everywhere. So that's how to find us. Thanks guys. We'll see you guys on Tuesday for game night. Have a good one. The podcast is real is a World Gone Geek production.